All right. Thank you. Take your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 3. If you have a copy of God's Word, if you don't, uh, we would love to give you one. We have one on a bookshelf in the back. It's yours for the taking. Uh, We also want to extend a greeting to all those who are joining us uh, live on our online stream who are uh, uh, due to illness or sickness, unable to come. We greet you. And also, as a congregation, can we greet our Bel Air campus at Bel Air? Thank you for joining us as well. I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking uh, that Craig looks more masculine, more, gr- more, more aggressive. He appears to have a higher social status, and he's more handsome. And, you know, the studies show that men with beards do. They, 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 uh, they look more masculine. They look more aggressive. They appear to have a higher, higher social status, and they are more handsome, like Johnny Depp, Brad Pitt, George Clooney. All right? So I, I know that that's what you're thinking. And my wife would disagree on all of them. All right? Just... So it's like, what's with the beard? Well, uh, it's promise time. So if you see like beards cropping up on different guys, uh, it's because of promise. Uh, And uh, here's what I'm going to challenge you with, okay? Not to grow a beard, especially you ladies, please. Um, (laughs) We are entering a season uh, tonight, starting tonight. We are inviting you as a church into a season of fasting and prayer. From Sunday at 8 p.m. until Tuesday at 8 p.m., 48 hours. Maybe fasting food at different meal times or the whole time. Maybe fasting TV or social media, but giving ourselves more concertedly or more focused to prayer. Uh, we want to culminate at our Tuesday evening prayer gathering, and at that time we're going to be praying specifically for the work of God through the promise production. We're going to be praying over cast members who are there. We're going to be praying for all of the invites that have gone out. And in Scripture, over and over again, you know, before a big move of God, the people were called to fasting and prayer. Okay, So this is why we do it. Uh, we, we turn our attention away from the things of this world that we're typically uh, you know, involved with, and we give ourselves more focus to prayer. So uh, consider that, would you? Uh, not a legalistic thing. In fact, today's message is on legalism, so not a legalistic. Uh, but if you would uh, join us for Tuesday evening prayer in beginning tonight, 48 hours of focused uh, fasting and prayer. Okay? All right, here we go. Galatians chapter 3. Uh, are you a legalist? Let's pray. Our Father, we give you praise this day. Thank you, Lord, so much for this word, for the word in Galatians. Lord, we uh, treat it as it is. It is the word of God uh, given to us, Lord, uh, uh, so that we may learn your decrees, that we may walk in your statutes, uh, and, Lord, that we may find joy in Jesus. We know, Lord, that you desire relationship with us and a reconciled relationship with your children And Father, we know that we get it wrong sometimes and we get into legalism and we get into uh, rules without relationships. So Father, I pray that you would help steward this time and by your spirit impact each and every person, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Focus of our text today is verses six through nine. Uh, Really, it's a sub point of everything he's been building on. And so here we go. We're going to kind of backtrack. Uh, Chapter 1, this is where we've been. In chapter 1, Paul begins with a proclamation of the gospel. He says in verse 4 that Jesus gave himself for our sins. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? Huh? Isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, To deliver us from the present evil age. This is the gospel. He's proclaiming it. In verses 6 through 10, he he talks about the purity of the gospel. Keep the gospel pure from all other gospels. Don't let it be contorted. Don't let it be twisted. Don't let it be distorted. Keep the gospel pure. 
And then in verse 11, he talks about the power of the gospel, the power to save sinners like me, sinners like you, the power to save big messes, little messes, the power to save uh, the ladies who were baptized today, the power to save people just like us. Isn't that awesome? It's the power of the gospel. Chapter 2, he talks about the preservation of the gospel, to preserve it, uh, to pass it on to the next generation. He says in verse 5, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And so it's all about guarding the gospel. It's all about open doors in the church, but also strong fences. And that was the message where we talked about preserving the truth of the gospel message. Chapter 2, verse 11, and here's kind of the context now building. He talks about protecting the gospel. The protection of the gospel from hypocrisy, number one, because how many of us know that in Christ we still sin, don't we? So protect the gospel from hypocrisy. Make sure our walk and our talk agree. And then in verse 15 on, it talks about protecting it from performance-based acceptance. That's what these tables up here are for. Two weeks ago, we talked about how there's two different points of reference based on our acceptance. Either we come to God thinking that our approval and our acceptance is based in what we do, our things, our achievements, our works, or we come to him based in the work of Christ and what he's done. And and that message was all about breaking away from performance-based approval and being found in Christ, okay? So this is kind of the context of where we're at. So as we move through here, the Apostle Paul is now attacking and he's trying to to free us from performance-based legalism. That sets the context. Are you a legalist? Anyone? 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 Well, not really. I'm not a legalist. Nobody would ever admit to be a legalist. I bet you're not a legalist. Uh, Few recognize it, but listen, all are prone to it. The old form of legalism equated legalism with external forms of dress or codes of conduct. You've heard the phrase, don't drink, smoke, chew, or date girls that do. Right? That's the old form. Those who had everything in order, they looked good on the outside, and others were messy and they looked down on them. This week, my wife and I, we cleaned out our closets. Okay? My closet looks like the Marine Corps. Uh, and, and this will give you a little insight into me. Uh, my dress shirts are ordered by color. <laughs> Isn't that great? Ordered by color. Dark to light, okay? So when I clean my closet, it's like straightening things. My wife's closet, and I got her permission to share this. My wife's closet, she's a free spirit, man. It's just like all over the place. And we're cleaning the closet, and she's like, this is so exciting. When I clean my closet, it's like going shopping. (laughs) Okay, so put those (laughs) in our marriage is healthy. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that great? Well, put those two closets together. And you have a picture of legalism, the old form of legalism. Externally, everything was done right. It was, everything was color-coded. Everything was in order. You go to Mass, you say the right prayers, you stand up, you sit down. But internally, like her closet, your heart is just full of mess, and it's full of a jumbled, joyless Christianity. Well, there's a new form of legalism. It it's kind of walks in the same path as the old form, but it's, it works quietly. It's really hard to diagnose. It's really hard to admit. And that's why when I said, are you a legalist, nobody's like, well, yeah, that's that's me. Because it's really hard to even see 
what it's like. So what does it look like? I was talking with Pastor Rick this week, and as we're walking through this text, we as pastors, we, we dialogue on it, and, and he says, you know, I don't, I'm not really quite sure that we as a congregation really have a clear picture of what legalism is and how prone each one of us is to it. And so what does it look like? I want you to take a look at the person on your right, okay? All right, now take a look at the person on your left, all right? Now look up here, okay? That's what legalism looks like. It looks as normal as the person next to you. It looks as normal, at, hopefully, as the, <laughs> minus the beard, as the person up here. It, it, it looks like us. How do you recognize it? Let's say you've been having some medical problems. Doc, you go to the doc. Doc, I've, listen, I've had shortness of breath. I've had chest pains. I've had blurred vision, and my arm hurts. What do you think is going on? Okay, symptoms, and then it points to something. Well, here's five symptoms that will help identify if you have a strain of the legalism virus. And I want you to, like a good legalist, check which ones belong to you. Okay, five symptoms of the legalism virus. Acceptance. Acceptance. The more I obey God, the more God loves me. The legalist believes that. The legalist believes that the more I obey God, the more he loves me, or the less I obey God, the less he loves me. Does that define you? Honestly, check. Two, rules. My Christianity, the legalist would say, if they're honest, my Christianity is a checklist of religious duties more than it is an intimate love affair with the living God. Would you say that your Christianity over the years has become that? It's become more of a checklist, more of the do's and the don'ts, but truly there's no, like, intimacy with the Father. Is that you? Check. Three, entitlement, okay? This is going to be the flip side. We're going to talk about this later today, but this attitude would say this, that God owes me. God owes me, and, and, and I will get angry with God if he does not bless my service or my obedience or my sacrifice or my this or my that. In essence, that I do things for God, and then he owes me something in return. It's entitlement. Does that describe a little bit of you? Check. Number four, motivation for works. The legalist will say that I am motivated for work, to do good works out of the pursuit of approval and applause. Chapter 1, verse 10 of Galatians. I want other people to notice. I want other people to see how good I am and how much I give and how great I am at serving. Does that describe maybe a little twinge of motivation? If so, check. And five, this is a big one, comparison. Anybody here ever compared with anybody else? Anyone, 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 anyone? No hands, Bel Air, you and me, baby. It's, it's, it's all about us. Okay, comparison. Compared to others, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. And honestly, uh, as I look at, as I compare my life to others, I am, I am significantly above average. I am above average. I might not be the top of the class, but I'm, a, I'm above average. Morality? Yeah, I'm above average because I've seen some uh, integrity. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm probably not top, but I'm, I'm above average. Uh, faithfulness, I'm above average. You guys ever notice that 100% of people think they're above average, which is statistically impossible? Okay, so here we go, five things. Acceptance, rules, entitlement, motivation for works, and comparison. How many describe you? If you scored one to two, you are a low-grade legalist. And a liar. <laughs> okay? If you scored three, you're a garden variety legalist, kind of run of the mill. 
And if you scored four to five like me, you were a gold standard legalist. This is how you identify symptoms. You take a look at things like this and you say, is this me? Is this me? And, and it's self-diagnosis and you know, we're not to do this for somebody else. We're to say, God, what is it in me? What are the symptoms in me? We're going to come back to those five, by the way. At the end of the sermon, we're going to come back to them by way of application. So be thinking on that list. In the great city of Detroit, uh, thousands of homes uh, exist today which are vacant. Uh, they uh, have been stripped of everything of value. They've been vandalized, filled with mold. Some are filled with water in their basements. They're havens of crime. In the city of Brightmoor, just outside of Detroit, officials plan to bulldoze, get this, as many as 450 houses a week. It's called Restore the Moor. 450 houses a week, over 20 square miles, they're planning to raise the city because of these homes which are stripped of all value. No copper, no wire, no water. They're just gone, stripped, vandalized. Well, in Galatians 3, this is kind of what Paul is doing. Paul is bulldozing performance-based legalism. He takes a look at your house, your life, and he says, listen, if you're a performance-based legalist, if you're a low-grade or gold-standard or run-of-the-mill legalist, he wants to knock over that performance-based legalism and call you back into a right relationship with God. Performance-based legalism is dutiful Christianity. And maybe if you and I sat for coffee, you would admit that your religion, let's call it for a moment, has turned into a bland mixture of one-third religion, one-third duty, one-third performance, and on top is a heaping amount of guilt. Does that describe maybe a little bit of your background? I've had a good number of folks from the New Hope congregation say that's exactly how I grew up. I was spoon-fed legalism. I was spoon-fed doing all the right things for all the wrong Reasons. Well, here's the bulldozer, and this is going to set the context going into last week's text, verses 1 through 5. The bulldozer, uh, here's where it goes into. Number one, uh, Paul is bulldozing the idea of this. My performance gets me in. That is, gets me in with God. Look at verse 2. Uh, again, last week's text, but it's very important for where we're headed today uh, because the thinking was that my obedience is what gains me acceptance with God. Or to say it another way, God accepts me based on what I do. Verse 2, take a look at it. It's a question. It's, it's rhetorical. He says this, did you receive the Spirit? Okay, translation, did you get saved? Did you come to know Christ? Were you accepted by God? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law here, by performance, by achievement? Is this is how you got accepted? Or did you receive it, what does he say, by hearing with faith? Answer? It's not a trick question. Answer? Hearing with faith. That's how we got in. So Paul takes the bulldozer and he knocks down the performance-based acceptance. Imagine this. Imagine God owns a house. And when you show up on the front doorstep of his house, you have muddy hands, you have torn jeans, you have a head full of lice. And when you came to the Lord, did he scowl at you? Did he tell you to get off the front porch, clean up, get your act together, and come back when you're a little more presentable? Did he do that? No. He opened the door wide and he says, welcome home. 
This is Paul's points, uh, point here. He bulldozes performance-based acceptance. Not only were we muddy, not only were we torn jeans, not only did we have heads full of lice, but we were running in the wrong direction, and he had to leave his house and come get you and me, didn't he? This is the good news of the gospel. Bulldoze. Number two, uh, my performance keeps me in. <laughs> okay, now, now we're meddling with some of you legalists like me, all right? I'm not picking on you. I, I preach this message to myself all week long. Now you get it, okay? This is good. This is good, isn't it? Okay. The thinking was this, okay, I can buy the fact that I'm saved by grace, I can buy the fact that he got me in, but I have to do something to prove that I'm worthy. I have to pretend like I'm worthy of acceptance and that my performance keeps me in. And Paul says, no, let's bulldoze that idea. Take a look at verse 3. Verse 3, are you so foolish, again, another rhetorical question, having begun by the Spirit, that is, having started by faith, having been accepted by faith, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? In other words, are you saying that your growth in the Christian life is solely tied to pulling up your own bootstraps and getting your act together and proving to God that you're worthy of acceptance. Imagine God owns a house. Uh, After he welcomes you in, muddy hands, torn jeans, head full of lice, you come into his house. uh, And Paul's question is this, did his tone change? Did God all of a sudden begin to scold you for getting the carpet dirty? Did he order you to try harder, work longer? No free rides, boy. You got to earn your keep around my house. Did he do that? No. He gently washes our feet. He cleanses us. He shows us that in spite of past sins that he loves us and he's perfecting us. And my mom's prayer for me is out of Philippians chapter 1. He who began a good work in you is what? Is, Is faithful to complete it. Paul knocks down the house. He says, not only uh, are you accepted by faith, but, but, but your, God keeps you in by faith. It's not about what your works are doing. Yes, we're called to works, and yes, we're called to do good things for the Lord, but don't get it mixed around in your legalistic mind, Paul says. He says, your performance does not keep you in any more than it got you in. And now number three, now it's really meddling with legalism here. My performance, the idea would be, earns me brownie points. It earns me. The thinking was, okay, all right, all right, maybe Jesus got me in, and maybe I'm in by faith, but certainly I can prove to God that I'm worthy of acceptance. Certainly I can pray the right words, do the right things, and and then I can take some of these old performance-based things, and I can begin to adorn the cross so that I look more acceptable, and it it looks better, and, and and I can get stuff from God, and then he would owe me, and then I can earn his favor. Paul knocks it down again. Look at verse 5 with this question. This is powerful. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you, notice it's all about the Holy Spirit and his salvation. Verse 3 was, you receive the Spirit. Verse uh, verse 2, rather, was you receive the Spirit. Verse 3 was, he, the Spirit, is perfecting you. And now take a look at verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit in the ongoing work of sanctification, does he who supplies the Spirit, and get this, and works miracles among you, does he do it by works? Does he do it because he owes you? Does he do it because you've earned it? Or does he do it 
by hearing with faith. What is the answer? Again, it's not a trick question. The answer is (laughs) by hearing with faith. Paul knocks it down. Imagine the house. You showed up on the doorstep, muddy hands, torn jeans, head full of lice. He welcomes you in. You get the carpet dirty a little bit, but he forgives, he restores, he cleans, he, uh, he's gracious. But then imagine this. Imagine God makes a meal, and it's a gourmet meal. And he sits down at the table, and, and he's uh, preparing to eat the meal, and you slide into the chair next to the Lord, and the Lord looks at you and says, what do you think you're doing? You didn't help cook this meal. Who do you think you are? In fact, I, don't, I haven't seen you lift one finger around this house. Get out of here. I, when you start showing me that you are worthy of sitting at my table, then I'm going to give you some food. Is that what he does? Or does he pull up the chair and he says, come to the banquet table and give you a double portion Yes, we don't deserve it. Yes, we're not worthy of it. No, we can't deserve it. But he loves us, and he's full of compassion. This is Paul's point. Our performance doesn't get us in. Our performance doesn't keep us in. Our performance doesn't earn us brownie points in that sense. Uh, But the legalist, and if you're like me and you have a strain of legalism, you're thinking, man, that's hard to accept. (laughs) That's why he's writing this. Look at how it started, verse 1. Oh, foolish New Hopians, right? Oh, foolish pastors, because we get it so twisted so easily to think it's all about me, it's all about what I'm doing. Tim Keller, the pastor on the East Coast, says this. Listen, listen. The number one lie Satan tells us is that we can prove ourselves. The number one lie Satan tells us is that we can prove ourselves. And the legalist is trying to prove themselves, and that's a legalistic mirror ground that will make you dizzy and joyless and thinking that religion is just not worth it. If I had a coin today, I, I would show you that, uh, that legalism has two very dark sides to it. One side is acceptance. God accepts me based on what I do, and that message was two weeks ago. This message is largely on the flip side of the coin, and that is repayment. God owes me based on what I do. In both line of thoughts, God accepts me or God owes me, the same line of thought is there that God is made a debtor because of what I do for him. Do you see the connection? Do you see it? I'm going to keep asking. Do you see it? All right, thank you. That's good. God accepts me based on what I do. God owes me based on what I do. And the connection is what I do is making God a debtor to me. He owes me something based on my performance. It is a slot machine religion. If I do A, B, and C, then God owes me D, E, and F. If I put in a coin of sacrifice, then divine blessing must come my way. I recently heard a story of a woman. Uh, She lost a pair of gloves. And she buried a statue of St. Anthony in her front yard. Uh, St. Anthony is the saint of lost items. And the thinking was that if I bury a statue in my front yard, then the Lord is guaranteed to show me favor. That's the story. 
Well, not many of us, I don't think, probably bury statues in our front yards, but we do wear crosses, don't we? We do have more Jesus bumper stickers. We do pray hedges of protection around our travel, and if we're not careful, none of those things are wrong, but if we're not careful, we can develop a legalism virus that forces God to repay us for our works. Let me run this story by you. Modern day just happened last week. Uh, Benito, uh, coast of California, Benito was helping uh, his pastor perform a baptism in the Pacific Ocean. Benito and this pastor and this guy who was being baptized, uh, they were all swept out into the ocean, and two of the people survived, but Benito is gone. He's lost and he drowned. And the legalism within us would say, well, hey, wait a minute, God, that's not fair. I mean, he was baptizing, wasn't he? I mean, he was baptizing somebody for your name, for your kingdom, for your church, and and you didn't have the the power to protect him? I mean, didn't he deserve protection? I mean, don't you think that? Honestly, don't you? I mean, that's what goes on in my mind when you see things like this happen, and that is a form of God owes me. It's the same thing of a single woman who desires a husband and thinks, well, God, haven't I been faithful? I mean, don't I deserve? Or the man diagnosed with cancer, thinking, God, don't I deserve healing and a longer life? Or the husband struggling financially. Uh, God, haven't I been attending church and tithing a portion of my money? Haven't I been doing all the right things? And don't you owe me a little bit of favor here? On and on the story goes. Do you see the danger? How our performance is the hinge on which God must turn. Look at verse 5 again. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you, does he do it? Does he work miracles in your life? Does he do it because you deserve it based on works? Or is it by faith? Paul is calling us back to a life of faith. Yes, works. Yes, do the right things, but make sure that it's done with the right attitude. Now we're in verses 6 through 9. The subpoint to all of God's, I, uh, or all of Paul's ideas here. I'm sorry. I, there's a gurgling going on here with the baptism tank. So I was like, who is, go, what is going I thought Bruce was back there again, man. So what's going on? Okay, sorry. Uh, this is Paul's main point. His main point now has been to emphasize that we are not saved, we're not accepted based on our performance. And now he continues that. In verse 6, just as Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Point one here is this, how can a man be right before God? It's the same emphasis that we've dealt with. How can a man be right before God? Point one, here it is, God puts his righteousness in our account. God puts his righteousness in our account. Look at verse 6 again. Just as he's by way of comparison, saying, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. To make his point that we are not saved by our performance, he reaches back 2,000 years before the cross and he, in essence, says, even Abraham would agree that our acceptance with God is based on faith, not performance. Uh, His Abraham believed God. It was counted to him. His faith was counted. What does that mean? Counted is an accounting term, meaning that you take money and you deposit it, deposit it into an account. 
And what Paul is saying here is that faith is the very means by which God takes his righteousness and deposits it in our account. It's not works. It's not performance. It's not pull up your own bootstraps. It's not do better. It's not try harder. It's faith. This is powerful. As of a month ago, I have now opened bank accounts for all of my four children. And what a, what a joyous experience that was. It was my idea. I took them. I drove them. I walked in with them. I sat down with them. I gave the funds to start the account. I did everything. They sat there, and they got the account open. And isn't that how God does it with us? It was his idea. He drove us. He picked us up. He opened the account. He said paid in full. He deposited the money. And this is what Paul is saying. It's by faith. You believe God. And he credits it as righteousness. So the legalist, the legalist said, wait a minute. Well, well, hey, hey, Tama, what do I have to do? Nothing. Yes, faith working in love. Paul's going to emphasize that in Galatians chapter 4. It's faith working in love and faith works. Yes, faith should not remain alone, should it? But we're not saved by it. We're not accepted based on it. And, And our performance is not what gets us in or keeps us in. And he's calling us back from the fringe of legalism to say, listen, God already opened the account. Stop trying to earn it. This is good news for us legalists. Martin Luther, uh, you know, he had a phrase. It was in Latin. Uh, I don't even know Latin, but I called a Latin professor uh, from our congregation. She's in Arizona at this time of year. Uh, but Martin Luther had a Latin phrase that went like this. It went, simul justus et picator. Simul justus et picator. And it means this. It means simultaneously righteous and sinful. Simultaneously righteous and sinful. And in Christ, this is what we are. We are simultaneously, we are righteous. His righteousness deposited in our account. And men and women, listen, do you still screw up every now and then? Do you still sin from now and Legalism tries to prove and earn that you're worthy of acceptance, but they, they miss the point that Luther so well captured that we are simultaneously righteous and sinful. But it's his righteousness in our account. It is not earned. Powerful point here. So God puts his righteousness in our account, number two, as a gift, as a gift, as a gift. Imagine, imagine this. You open a birthday present, uh, and, and you open the box, and it's a gold watch. Oh, you're so excited about the gold watch. And men, you pull out your wallet. Ladies, you pull out your purse. Uh, and, and the person, the, a dear friend of yours who gave you the gift, you start thumbing through the bills, and you say, hey, how much do I owe you for that? Would you say that's rude? What did you say? That's rude. Because it's a gift. It's, it's yours, free of charge. And the friend would be like, what are you talking about? Man, I love you, and I wanted to give you. I wanted to bless you with that gift. And it's the same with the Lord. The wages of sin, Romans tells us, is death. But the gift of God is, help me, it's eternal life. It's eternal life. It's a gift. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't repay it. It's yours. Look what Paul says here in verse 7 and verse 9. It's the same, it's, he's saying the same thing twice. He says then, know then that it is those of, read it, what? Faith. It's those of, read it, faith. Okay, more than two. It's those of faith, okay, who are sons of Abraham. Verse 9, same thing. So then, those who are of 
faith are blessed along with Abraham, a man of faith. What is this whole idea of sons of Abraham, daughters of Abraham, and how are we in Abraham? Well, here, just interesting little side note. All three major world religions, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, all three consider Abraham their patriarch. Islam in Islam, Abraham is, the key, is a key link in the chain of prophets that began with Adam, who they consider to be the first Muslim. And that chain goes through Noah and Abraham and Elijah and a whole bunch of others and Jesus, he was a prophet, and, and then it culminates with Muhammad. So Islam claims Abraham is theirs, and, and they think that the Bible gets it wrong because it wasn't actually Isaac who gets the blessing from uh, Abraham, it was Ishmael. Judaism Abraham is their founding father. He's the first Jew. He's the father of Isaac. And from his physical lineage, from his birth lineage, comes the chosen people, born as recipients of God's promise, thus separating into two camps, Jew and what? Gentile. By the way, I'd like to just recommend an excellent movie. Somebody in our congregation referenced it to me. It's a fantastic movie. It's called The Other Son. It's English subtitled, so if you, like, get all freaked out by that, you know, then don't get it, okay? But it's called The Other Son, and it shows the tension between Jew and Arab, between Jew and Muslim, and it's a, it's a powerful, it kind of brings Galatians to life in the sense of modern day. Pretty cool. Well, then we have Christianity. Uh, we uh, claim Abraham as ours, not by... Not because he was a prophet in a link of chain or chain of whatever, okay? Not because of that, not because of his performance, not because of his obedience, and not because of his physical lineage, but because of his faith in God's promise. And so we grow up in Sunday school, and we start singing the song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right arm, Father Abraham. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, we're done, all right? That's, that's, listen, listen. In January, I'm in India. I'm in the province of Gujarat in a small little classroom of, of, of students, and they're singing in their Hindi language the, the song. They're singing Father Abraham. And I have nothing in common with these kids. I don't know their language. I'm not related to them. I'm of a totally different nationality. And yet the beauty is, is that in Christ, in Christ, whether you're an American from Michigan, whether you're an Indian from Gujarat, whether you're a Jew from Israel, whether you're an Arab from Iran, whether you're a communist from North Korea, all who are born-again followers of Jesus Christ are sons and daughters of Abraham. In, by faith in Christ. That is what unites the body worldwide. That I have more in common with those kids singing Father Abraham than I do my neighbor who doesn't know Jesus as Lord. This is the mystery of it. It's powerful. And this is what Paul is saying. It's a gift. It's not ours by birth order. It's not ours by achievements or trophies or works or merit. It is ours because of the work of Jesus Christ. Have you received that gift? Honest. I mean, be honest with yourself. Have you received the gift of God in Jesus Christ as Lord? We say, well, Craig, how do I do that? Well, God puts his righteousness in our account as a gift. Here's how. Number three, to all who embrace the cross. 
to all who embrace the good news, to all who embrace Jesus. Uh, look at verse 8. <laughs> this is a power. This is one of those like New Testament verses that's like, this is powerful right here. It says this, and the scripture, there he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures, Genesis through Malachi. He's talking about the Old Testament. He says, the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify, that is, accept or save the Gentiles by faith. The scriptures foreseeing that God was going to accept even Gentiles by faith. Pre- get this, listen. Preached the gospel beforehand to who? To Abraham. Wait a minute, I thought the gospel was the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yeah, it, it is. It's the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord. But the scriptures, by faith, foreseeing that God was going to justify both Jew and Gentile by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham, saying, here it is, here's the promise, this is Genesis, uh, here's, here it is, in you shall all nations be blessed. In you, Abraham, shall all nations be blessed. This was the gospel presented to Abraham. He didn't have the cross in his mind. He didn't see Jesus dying, but he heard God's promise. He saw it from a distance. He didn't see the cross, but he believed. And the Hebrews 11 says he believed that even God could raise the dead. So by faith in the Old Testament, Abraham and Noah and, and Moses and Elijah and Rahab and, and, and Esther and all of those people, by faith, they looked ahead to the promises of God, which would one day be fulfilled in Christ, and they were saved by faith. In the New Testament, we believers, we look back to the cross, and we see that Jesus fulfilled all of his promises, and in Christ, we too can have redemption. And the two of us, Old Testament, New Testament, together, united, what does Paul say? By performance? No, by faith. And look at the promise made to Abraham in verse 8. The promise that was given him, all nations will be blessed, Abraham. All nations will be blessed because of you. (laughs) And now fast forward, here we are, the year 2014. Hasn't all nations been blessed by the name of Jesus Christ? Isn't that cool? What God promised to Abraham has been fulfilled. This is the gospel according to Abraham. This is the gospel according to Paul. It's the gospel according to Jesus. It is a gospel of faith united in the cross of our Lord Jesus. So let's move back to those five symptoms of legalism because, again, his main thrust is to bulldoze legalism and let's, by way of application, move through these. Number one, acceptance. Do you remember that one? Remember when I said, the more that I obey God, the more God loves me? Or the less I obey, the less he loves me. Well, this application would be this, acceptance, here it is, here's truth. God's love does not rise or fall based on obedience. God's love for you, his love for you, does not rise, it does not fall based on obedience. And, and listen, I know that that strikes us legalists as, as weird because doesn't it feel like the more that we obey God, the more he loves us? Doesn't it feel like that? Doesn't it? Anybody with me? Anybody? Any, any, okay, thank you. This is what it feels like. And this is why we have to remind our little legalistic hearts, not true. He loves me fully and completely. God so loved the world, even with muddy hands, torn jeans, and the lice head. While we were still sinners, Romans 5, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners and enemies of the cross, he, he died for us. 
Parents, is it not obvious with your kids? Sometimes they do things that tick you off. And yes, we may discipline. Yes, we may get angry about disobedience. But as parents, is it not true that the one thing that should never change in our hearts is that we love our kid? And we would just love nothing more than to take them on our lap and tell them we love them and we forgive them and, and, and we restore that relationship. And isn't that the same with God? So some of us need to bulldoze our view of God. Some of us think that God is a harsh, oppressive, cruel dictator who is hard to please, never happy, and feels you could have done it a little bit better. Anybody here hearing that voice? You need to be reminded that God is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And his love for us is never changing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He loves those with clean closets, and he even loves those with dirty closets. Number two, rules. Rules. Remember this one where I said that your Christianity has become a checklist of uh, more religious duties than it is a vibrant love, intimacy of relationship with the Father. Well, rules are not bad. God has rules, and the Scripture has a lot of commands that we are to obey. But here's the danger. The danger is when rules are sever severed or divorced from relationship. The old saying goes like this, rules without relationship leads to rebellion. You might want to write that down. Rules without relationship leads to rebellion. And that's the same with your kids as it is with the legalist. When the legalist severs or divorces rules from a relationship with God, it will only lead in one direction, and that is rebellion. And some of you have come out of religious traditions. You've told me where a season of your life, it was all rules, no relationship, and it led to rebellion in your teens and in your 20s and in your 30s, and it took a while before you recognized that, wow, you mean Christianity is not about rules only? You mean it's about a relationship with the living God? And that's what I invite you into. If you're still on the outside looking in, I invite you to taste of a relationship with God. Anybody here like checklists? I mean, honest. Do you like checklists? Because I like checklists. I mean, remember, my closet is ordered by color, okay? I like checklists. So when it comes to devotions, I read my Bible better when I have a checklist, meaning that I have a plan I work through. I memorize Scripture better when I have little cards and I, and I kind of check it off. I, I, I kind of do things better when I have a checklist, but here's the danger with that. The danger of legalism is that we begin to do the checklist and we miss God's heart all so I want to warn us and draw us back to relationship. Worship, are you tired of stand up, sit down, sing songs, repeat liturgy, and all the while miss the heart of God? Are you tired of that? Well, God's tired of that too. He invites you into relationship. Number three, entitlement. This is the one where I said, God owes me. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like God owes you based on something that you do? Avoid the snare of making God our debtor. Avoid the snare of making God our debtor. Let me tell you about a time in my life. It, was, it had to be the darkest moment of my life in terms of my relationship with God. I was a teenager. I was, uh, I was at home. Uh, I was in the, uh, outside. Uh, I was in the driveway. Uh, and I flipped God off. And I screamed at him. I cursed at him. And I was angry at him. 
And the reason why I was mad at God and I cursed God and literally I flipped him off at that time in my life, here's the reason. Here's the reason. Ready? Ready? Okay. Because I thought that God owed me better basketball skills. That's stupid. That's stupid. I'm so glad for the grace of God in Jesus Christ that forgives even that blasphemer. I deserve death at that point in my life. But how many of us, it's not a basketball, but how many of us say, God, you owe me. What size of gift? Think about it this way. What size of gift, what amount of money, what healing, what blessing do we really deserve from God because we have served him so well? (laughs) What do we deserve? Is God in any way our debtor? Romans 11, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has ever given God a gift that he might be repaid? Isn't that funny? And yet the legalist tries to prove themselves and tries to say, like, God owes me because I've served him so well or I've done it so well. And, and Paul would knock down that wall to say, listen, the one thing that we do deserve is hell and that is what we've been rescued from. So avoid the snare of making God your debtor. I don't know what label it goes by, but for me it was a ball. And it can be that foolish or it can be something big that you think that God owes you, but let's avoid that snare because that is the flip side of legalism. Number four, motivation. Remember how I said it's based in approval and applause? Uh, That's what the legalist does. Well, here it is. Constantly ask, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Motivation. This is, by the way, I told you to look at the person on your left, right, okay? This is why legalism is so hard to spot because it's so much bound up in what I'm, the motivation. A legalist does all the right things for all the wrong reasons. They attend church, they lead Bible studies, they can preach a sermon, they lead worship songs, they do everything, they do all the right things, but they do it all for the wrong reasons. And Jesus, our Lord, says this, listen. He says, when you pray, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who stand up and they, and they want to be seen by everybody. Uh, rather, he says, go into your closets. I presume a clean closet. Go into your closet. Close the door. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you fast, like I'm calling us into, when you fast, Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites who walk around, I'm so hungry, I'm starving, I haven't eaten since breakfast. Don't do that, Jesus says. Rather, wash your face. I mean, look fine. I mean, I mean don't, don't do it for a show. Rather, fast before the Lord in quietness and in reverence, and the Lord who sees in secret will reward you. Not Jesus, but Craig says, when you serve in the promise, uh, whether it's a position on stage or whether whatever behind the scenes, don't do it because other people will see you and recognize your good works before God. Rather, do it quietly with an internal motivation that desires God's glory and your Father who sees in secret, he'll reward you. Number five. Comparison. Uh, this is the one where I said, I'm not that bad, I'm above average, and uh, I'm, at least I'm not like you, okay? At least I'm not like you. Uh, okay, well, here's the truth. God does not grade us on a curve. He does not grade us on a curve. When a teacher grades on a curve, all scores are compared to the top achiever. The highest score in the class becomes the basis of perfection. And in a classroom of legalism, students are always comparing and competing with one another. Those who are better are arrogant, 
Those who are inferior are jealous. We compete, we compare, we score, and all the while, 100% of people feels like they're above average. Jesus tells one parable that legalists hate. You know the parable that he tells that legalists hate? He says, a master went out to to hire people for his vineyard, and he hired some at 9 o'clock and some at noon and some at 3 and some at 6 and some at 8 p.m. And at nightfall, he gathers them all together and he gives them all the same wage. And the legalist will say, that's not fair, man. I did more than they did, right? Isn't that what legalists do? Doesn't God have the ability to give to all as he desires? The thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. A pastor who serves for 50 years, today you'll be with me in paradise. It is not based on your performance. Yes, works matter. Yes, works matter. That's coming up. Galatians, faith, working, and love. But it is not based in what we do. And this is good news, that God takes his righteousness and he puts it in our account. There's one person who has a perfect score, a perfect record, and that is Jesus. Everyone else has a failing grade. But the good news of the kingdom of God is that he takes the perfect score of Jesus and he credits it to your account. Treats you as righteous, simultaneously righteous and sinful together because of Christ our Lord. And it's in him that we will hold to that old rugged cross until at last we lay our trophies down. Let's pray. Father, we will cling to that old rugged cross and we will cherish it until our trophies at last we lay down, Lord. And in the meantime, we don't even cling to our trophies as if they were some sort of acceptance-based or approval-based. We simply do the work that you have called us to do, knowing that we are safe and secure. We are accepted because of the cross. We are kept because of the cross. We praise you, Father, for the work of Calvary. And I pray, Father, that now that you would take this message, sink it into our hearts, and may it produce fruit, some 30, 60, and 100-fold. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you sing? Stand and sing. Pastor Rick, thank you. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross the emblem of suffering and shame and I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of sinners was Till my time.